Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. This is Brandon Tatum, and today you're going to get to hear a conversation that I had with Andrew Root at the Museum of the Bible. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being here. I, I appreciate your research and your work. And, um, I, I appreciate that James K. Smith's work for some time and what he means for spiritual formation. He talks about that. I've recently come across your work and uh, kind of adds a, a, like a different level to that. And it's your, your work, not that James' work is difficult to navigate, your work is more difficult to navigate in the sense of practical application, if that makes sense. Uh, I want to start, you were in Mark 9, I want to start in Mark 5, and I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question, all right? So we're gonna ask the audience a question. But, uh, on Mark 5, I'm gonna read verses one through eight. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Okay. It's 2020, and you're at the mall in your city, and you see this man running through the mall. He, you know, he's naked, he's cutting himself, security's trying to stop him, they're, they're trying to tase him, they can't, they can't stop him, nobody can stop him, he's crying out, screaming. Raise your hand if, if, you, if you see that, if you immediately think this guy's on drugs or is mentally ill, or I want you to raise your hand if you think this man's demon-possessed. So raise your hand if you think this guy's on drugs or mentally ill. Raise your hands high. Okay, raise your hands if you think he's demon-possessed. About five of us. So we have a group of Christian school administrators leading Generation Z that are disenchanted. I, I would have answered mentally ill or on drugs too. Like, it's just not... We could say it's our kids, but even us, like, it's just not easy for us to go to the transcendent world. And I like your, your reading. You talked about the community. You talked about it here. But one of the lines you have in one of your books, I think it's pastoring a secular age, where you say, 
We want so badly for communion to be sacred. But at the end of the day, we know it was bought at Albertsons. You know, I mean, I don't want to take that lightly, but but we struggle with this. So, so talk to us a little bit about even we are struggling with this. And how do we, do we need to bring re-enchant, do we need to try to re-enchant our, our kids and yeah. ourselves? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about this. It, it is really interesting that uh, I would raise my hand that it was, I would have thought this person is on, on crystal meth or, or something like that. And maybe there's not such a firm line between demonic possession and crystal meth, actually. I mean, maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's a larger kind of a, a way to, to think about those realities. But, it, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting because as we talk about these things, we get real losses. Like, we lose the fact that in an enchanted age, it doesn't take much for us to think that God is acting in us, or that we need God, and we're vulnerable to need that. And those, those, that's a real loss. But we do also get certain gains, too. And this is what's hard about living in this world, that it does, it allows us to function a little bit better, that we're not, you know, someone at your table says a weird comment, and you're not thinking, well, maybe that there's a demon in that person. We tend not to assume those things. Or to put this kind of in, in your world, I have a 12-year-old daughter, too. And um, her teachers are assigning too much homework right now. And so what happens at 6.30 every night, she has a breakdown. And she tries to think about how much homework she has. So tell your teachers to assign less homework to make parents of 12-year-olds go nuts. Which every night at 6.30, she has a breakdown. Throws herself on the floor, cries. My imagination, my wife is a pastor, I'm a theologian, neither of us think, uh-oh, the devil is at our door. We've got, we got to call a Catholic priest to come do an exorcism because a Lutheran couldn't do it. Uh, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't think that. We tend to think, uh, well, she's overwhelmed, hormones, puberty, all these other answers that are more natural material than spiritual are there. And that does give us some gains. That isn't all a bad thing. The risk of another Salem witch trial is probably pretty low in a late modern world. But also, we're never really quite as modern as we think we are. What was the Super Bowl? The Patriots won the Super Bowl at, in, uh, at the, the new Dallas Stadium, what, like four or five years ago, remember this? And remember the big news story the day after the Cowboy, or after they won, after uh, Tom Brady led them to the comeback? And the big news story was that someone had gotten into the locker room and stolen Tom Brady's game-used jersey, and they had to get the Texas Rangers on it to try to find this jersey, and I think they found it in Mexico or something. But you do kind of think to yourself, why did anyone want Tom Brady's gross, sweaty, grass-stained, or just dirty um, jersey? Well, we still are never quite as modern as we think we are. It, it, it doesn't have a reference to a divine force, we still like these relics of sports heroes and celebrities as well. So we're never quite as disenchanted as we think we are, but the larger institutional structures tend to be. And um, I think there's ways that we have to recover some sense of enchantment, but really, I don't know if we, what we need to recover is just the idea that there could be an evil force around every corner. As much as with inside a world where that becomes doubted, how do you help your young people have an imagination that there is a living God who speaks in the world. That there's a living God who uh, encounters them and shows up in their lives. That becomes, even to kids who are really committed to it, at a certain level that becomes unbelievable. 
And so how do we help connect that? How do we help them have a vision for seeing that there's a living God who can still act and move in their lives? And that becomes the challenge of section three. The issue isn't just we need to keep kids in the church. We do. But the bigger issue is how do we help them have an imagination for how it is God acts in the world? And um, take on the practices and the visions and, and the thoughts that uh, open up that reality to them. Do you have any specifics in that regard? Well, I mean, for me, the, the, the real specifics, the, the, the big driving practicality is that young people need to hear a lot of narratives of that experience. That I think one of the things that can happen in the Secular Two perspective is we get so enamored with resources that we think, okay, if we can just get these resources within our kids, then we'll have the resources of them staying, that we end up turning church or maybe our, even our religion classes in our schools into a thing that we ask young people to willfully consent to commit to the thing, commit to the youth group, commit to this, instead of seeing that at the heart of it, Christi the Christian commitment is a story. It's a story that you start to tell the, your own story next to. And so one of the ways you learn to tell the story of your life inside the story of the one who's been crucified resurrected and ascended is that you have to hear a lot of people tell that story. So part of the problem, I think, with Protestant youth ministry particularly mm -hmm. is that young people have been kind of put in a certain place where they're cohorted off with their age group, and they may hear stories or have conversations with people their own age, but they rarely hear other people in the faith community telling stories of faith and doubt, of hope and longing that they need to hear a lot of those narratives. So I think as adults, whether we're parents, whether we're at, uh, leading schools, whether we're in our local congregations, the big question for us, real practically, is how many, we wanna use an old Christian word, testimonies, how many testimonies do we expose our young people to? And that becomes, I think, the heart of faith formation. And the, the testimonies need to have that nice three-arc move where you tell testimony like, you know, I was really lost because I got cancer and um, where I was gonna have enough money to pay my medical bills. So I was teaching chemistry at a local high school and there was a kid in my class who um, I knew uh, sold drugs and so I started to cook crystal meth. It was blue. I ended up the biggest drug dealer in all of Albuquerque. All right, I'm just telling you Breaking Bad now, if you haven't seen that show. But then I found Jesus, and now everything's okay. Like, those, that's a certain kind of testimonial that we usually say, and a lot of people in our church will say, well, I can't really tell my story because I, I don't have a really good story. I was never on drugs. Or I was never Walter White selling drugs and then found Jesus. So our young people need, but those stories are there, and they need to hear those stories. But they also need to hear stories of people who are still, still wrestling with God, like Jacob. I mean, still it is dark, and they're wrestling with God. And one of the stories I think they need to hear, and this is not my story, but I think young people need to hear stories, like a teacher at your school or um, in, a, in a church, someone telling the story where someone says, you know, I know you guys are reading this verse in Romans of God working all things out for the good of those who love God. I believe that. I really deeply believe that. But I gotta tell you, 15-year-old, I gotta tell you, you ninth graders, that uh, you know my daughter is the same, and we had no idea what it was. And we went to every specialist, to every specialist to figure out what it was. Finally, one doctor told us what it was. It was this genetic condition. And the only way she could deal with this, at least for the next few years, is she has to have an injection three times a day. And one of those injections has to happen in the middle of the night. So 
my alarm goes off every night at 3.30. And I have to get up and I walk into her room, my seven-year-old room, a pew, a pew, uh, a pink pew, as uh, I walk over to her, move her stuffed animals, grab her with lunch, shake her awake enough that I can find a vein, and I stick her with it. And every night, she squeals. And I walk back to my room, and I try to fall back asleep, and I think to myself, what did Grandma do? Where is God here? I gotta tell you, Mentor, I don't know. I don't know if God's good. I don't know why God did this. Ron still showed up to this church. I did. I took the invitation of your principal to tell this story. And I'm trusting. I don't know. I'm doubting more than I'm believing. But this is the story. And that becomes a story that young people need to get to and wrestle with what does it mean to confess Christ and Him crucified in the middle of that story where things aren't finished. And that's what I mean by kind of secular three, is that we have to find faith inside of that. And so really practically, they have to hear those narratives. And then have someone ask, well, what, what does this mean? Is God good in the midst of this person who we know who is still in the process of trying to figure this out? How do we think the Christian faith is in this? But if we see our issue as only a secular two issue, you want to stay away from those stories. Because those stories may open them up to doubt to leave and not affiliate with whatever Christian group you're in. But my point is, that's an illusion that you can do that anyhow. In this kind of secular free age, you cannot keep them from doubt. That's the frame that we live in. So what would it then mean for us to embrace that and really seek for God inside of those big questions, those big, scary wrestling, with those experiences like the Father in Mark 9, who really wants to believe up against doubt, who really wants to find Jesus acting um, in this moment. That's great. I also think, too, we, we live in a world where we take so many blessings for granted, mm -hmm. and we don't give God the credit. Mm -hmm. We don't name it, right? Like that, that's a God thing. But that's Satan's right. We don't name those things anymore. We just kind of take them for granted. Yeah. Uh, when you were talking about the narrative, one of the things I've been struggling with is, or just thinking through with this generation, is that the, the scriptures as we know them today, or as we have them, really came out of an oral tradition mm -hmm. to where story and narrative was a significant part of, of that growing up in faithful nation experience. Then we got them in writing, and it's a great thing, but we moved kind of from an oral tradition to a literate tradition, so where we were reading, reading was a big thing. Or this generation is not reading, But I do see a generation where maybe we're coming out of, Dr. Ong would say that we're coming out of literate into a, into a secondary morality, but more of a visual society. Mm -hmm. And in the visual society, story is important again, yeah. right? So it's almost a little closer to that oral move. Yeah. Um, what do you think when you think of this, this generation and the visual society that they're kind of living in? Yeah, I, I mean, overall, I think I agree. And I think it is true that they're not reading and then, you know, these young young adult literature books come out and everyone reads them. You know what I mean? So, yeah, the Harry Potter or, you know, this really dates me, but like the Twilight series or whatever, like all of a sudden everyone's reading them. But one of the things that I think happens in, even inside those stories, I mean, Harry Potter's a really interesting one because it, it has a sense of kind of enchantment and, 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 and it's a coming of age story or what, whatever. Um, but even, even some of these, you, you start to be able to interpret your life inside these stories. And I think one of the, the, the problems we've had with 
the biblical text as story is we've, we've, we've seen it as you just need to know this story. Just know the facts of this story. As opposed to, and I think it's one of the beautiful things about this museum, is you see how these narratives fed real communities of faith to live in these valleys. That this, this story, that they told their own story inside of these stories. And so when, when the biblical text does incredibly transformational work in people's lives, and when we read it and are like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful, or hear it, it's often when someone tells their own story or the story of their community inside these biblical stories. And the stories start to interpret their life. Um, and that, that's more of a challenge, I think. It's one thing to try to help a generation of, of young, young people, and, and you all have this opportunity where you're actually able to teach the Bible to your students. And it's one thing to get them to know information and to have information. And you do need some information to be able to make sense of it. But what's more difficult and more profound is to help them actually interpret this, these narratives inside the narratives of their own life, to have these stories interpret their own lives. I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I know that I have some experience with, the, with the, the museum, and I know that they've, they've done things where they look at certain communities and how they've interpreted the text, and particularly um, African-American communities uh, during, during um, uh, the Civil War, and how the biblical text in those stories were interpreted in a certain way that, uh, that allowed them to, to engage uh, in the world in a certain way. And they just become incredibly profound um, articulations. So there, there's something with, with that. So I think there is this need back to story, but how these stories, these biblical stories, interpret our own lives and then how we interpret them becomes really significant, I think. I think we've done ourselves a little bit of disservice by using the phrase a Bible study, um, because I think Young people particularly kind of think of it like, um, uh, you know, a study group for the social studies exam. Like there's information that you're supposed to master here so you can pass the test. As opposed to the Bible is always something you read. And then you let it read you and read your life. So I think we'd be better off thinking of Bible reading groups that are just we read the Bible and then read it next to our lives. And to remind ourselves, too, like when I grew up in, in a youth ministry, I was told, I was given a Bible and told, go home and spend time by myself reading the Bible. Uh, and the Bible is a book you read by yourself. You know, at least post the Protestant Reformation, it is something you can take and read by yourself. But we do forget that the Bible is first and foremost a communal book. It's supposed to be read with a group of people. Uh, and that's something profoundly you all can do in a classroom, is actually read this text with a group of people and ask, what does this mean for us? And to echo Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his prison letters where he, was, he even said in, a, in the end of World War II as he's seen Berlin being bombed out of his prison window and he asked, who is Jesus Christ for us today in this world? And there is a really profound move for us to ask, what is this biblical text for us now? What does this mean for us now? And it's not us just interpreting and judging it, but allowing it to interpret and in some ways judge and invoke from us and from, from our stories. And that's a harder thing to do, and it's a more open-ended thing to do, but it's a really profound, formative thing if we can, if we can do it. Thank you very much. Let's give him a round of applause. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.